since all of the episodes for this first month of, of uh, Measuring Flicks Season 4 were recorded by uh, Connor, Carl, and I well in advance for me to put off editing and still run a little bit late on, um, that means we got uh, a new patron in the time that these are dropping, and I wanted to make sure that uh, she got to hear her hilarious handle uh, on the air. So we would like to welcome the latest patron to the FCK sorority family. Uh, welcome, Baloney Shoes. Uh, the wonderful Aaron Shug. Thank you so much for your support, and on with the show. Just a few film nerds breaking out of a rut, drooling over cinema that's hard and uncut. Stick us in your ear, thrill to this month's picks, and come and listen in, we're measuring flicks. What you're about to hear is part two of a long conversation on 2005's Brokeback Mountain that I had with my co-host Carl Hartley and our very special guest Connor Sweeney, who curated all of the films for this first month of Measuring Flicks Season 4, his theme, Forbidden Love. Um, If you haven't heard part one yet, you might want to go back and listen to that. Otherwise, um, dive on in and enjoy. Um, I think it's interesting that Ennis bathes in a bucket. And Jack, because you, you got me thinking about Jake Gyllenhaal's butt just there, Connor. And I think that oh, it's interesting. I, I mean, I know. Oh, I, I kind of have been. There's some great male butts in this movie. And Heath Ledger's dangler is is flying around when they jump off that cliff. You know, I was kind of bummed. I So I, like, when they jump off the cliff into the river, I was like, oh, my God, I got to rewind this bird. Do you want to see Heath Ledger's dick? Rewind, play. It's not super in focus. It's, no, it's, and it's just it's a flash, but... But come on, you know, tell me it's not fun to see a flash of a celebrity's like yeah, naked absolutely. bits. It's I awesome. mean, we uh, we all remember all the right moves, and when you pause it just right, you can see Tom Cruise's dick. I mean, hey man, watch Wild Things. Kevin Bacon steps out of that shower. You mm-hmm. see Bacon's bacon right there. Dude, oh, yeah, you right do. He- Mad Canadian bacon. Any actor, <laughs> any any male actor who's got the cojones to dangle on? brain yeah. on screen, it just has my. <laughs> Has my applause, dude. That's a brain. Sorry. I'm so glad I cried on this episode. <laughs> should, I, should I time stamp Sorry, it and Max cut that up? Mike gonna Hold on, I'll do this sound effect. I'm doing live sound effects for all. I'm I not sure it. if that's supposed to be my guitar or the foghorn effect from the lighthouse episode. From the lighthouse uh, episode. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I so I, I rewind and play that for Bird, and I'm like, dude, did you see it? And she's like, seen one, seen them all. Walks away, totally unimpressed. I'm like, that was a naked celebrity. Are you out of your mind? Those people are famous up there. That's a famous <laughs> penis you saw. Jesus. Some people just don't know what they got. Nothing like a good penis. Um, so famous. famous penis. I'm not exactly famous? sure where in the movie we are, but there is a moment that I wanted We're to. Coming down from the mountain. I want to talk about Ennis Del Mar being completely overwhelmed by his feelings and collapsing to his knees in the alley. God, that's an incredible moment. It's amazing. It's completely. He is overwhelmed, and watching him be overwhelmed, I was overwhelmed. It's overwhelming. Yeah. My and it's the him yelling at the guy. What the fuck are you looking at? Love that. Think that's great. But what I love most about that is the J cut where he is kneeling with his head bowed, and we start to hear the Lord's prayer, and we cut yeah. to his wedding. To his wedding. 
in the church. What an outstanding bit of editing. That is just one of the most incredible cuts I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. To go from him being ravaged by what he's what he's done, what he's lost, what he's afraid he might never find again. Yeah. What this means he's he this is a man who's gutted. He is raw. And we're going to go from that to you may kiss the bride and if you don't I will. We're cutting from mm-hmm. that to a wedding and just the fact of that cut. Obviously he's kneeling and we hear a prayer. That's that's clever as all hell, but what I love is going from an emotional low like that to what should be an emotional high just turns that wedding gray. It takes yeah. all the heart out of it. Stiff at the wedding too. He's so just stoic and barely even there. Yeah, and you know, hardly can even laugh at the the preacher's joke of his stupid you know, joke. Well, yeah, exactly. Because yep. just so stiff. Um, I I know I keep going back to the short story here, but one of the points that I I wanted to touch on was this to me is one of the greatest uh, book or story to film adaptations that I've ever seen. And the way that I wanted to talk about the way that Ang Lee conveys the non-dialogue parts of the short story. Mm. So if, if you don't mind real quick, I just want to read that section you were just talking about. Yeah, go how for the it. short story describes that. Because, the, the, you know, the dialogue is, is one thing that's lifted straight from the story. But so they come down off the mountain and they, they say goodbye. And, um, you know, he says, well, see you around, I guess. The wind tumbled an empty feed bag down the street until it fetched up under his truck. Right, said Jack, and they shook hands, hit each other on the shoulder. Then there was 40 feet of distance between them and nothing to do but drive away in opposite directions. Within a mile, Ennis felt like someone was pulling his guts out, hand over hand, a yard at a time. He stopped at the side of the road and, in the whirling new snow, tried to puke, but nothing came up. He felt about as bad as he ever had, and it took a long time for the feeling to wear off. And then the next sentence starts, In December, Ennis married Alma Beers and had her pregnant in mid-January. That's the cut right there. I mean, that. and I love yeah. to to jump over to Annie Annie Pearl's writing there. I love that we get a paragraph of dialogue and description about how emotionally destroyed he is by thinking that he's never going to get a get he's never going to see Jack again. And as they drive away, yard by yard, as they move mm-hmm. yard by yard away from each other, mm-hmm. his guts are pulled out as though he something in him is now tied to jack and we we get a whole paragraph of that in beautifully evocative mm-hmm. language and then in one sentence we get married pregnant by in december yep. ennis married alma beers and had her pregnant by mid-january that is the only thing said about the wedding and i think the that's next sentence talks about says, his ranch job that's it that says that's so whole, much though doesn't it yeah in how absolute. little it says that that's how mm-hmm. much that marriage matters in this mm-hmm. story you know what i mean yeah. obviously Fuck. it'll come to mean more later but it we yada yada right through to yeah oh yeah the next paragraph is the next year of his life in yeah. one paragraph and then it's basically like that until he sees jack again it's just like three paragraphs of this is what happened this is what happened boom jack's back in and then it's three pages of them in the hotel room and right right uh, oh my god that so anyway because yeah. really their life is living in between those moments right Absolutely. it's that's that's the only thing that matters everything else is barely fucking there it's all static in the background it doesn't matter until they get to see each other again speaking speaking of the static in the background the other i like i like that his i like your concept of his life is static in the background i saw his life away from jack when he's 
on the ranch because we he ends up on a ranch for a bit, which was mm-hmm. a, um, ostensibly his goal. Yeah, but that's what he wanted. That the way that that fucking ranch is shot, so desolate. Again, that thing you were talking about earlier, Connor, where the the horizon is so low and it's just empty. It's the house and nothing else. I'm sure you noticed too that a lot of the time when we're in Ennis Del Mar's life off of the mountain, there's storm clouds and the sky is gray and all gray. Yeah. Yep. It's the mm-hmm. world is such a cold color palette when Jack is not around. And I, I, I absolutely love that. Um, I love when we when we first meet that that ranch almost as a character. Ennis isn't mm-hmm. there. It's Al, it's Alma hanging uh, or no, she's washing laundry in the sink. So you yeah. have blowing wind, banging shutters, that frustrated, almost Ugh. like frantic shuff of the laundry on the laundry board in the sink, and the screaming of children. And that's when Ennis shows up, and you're like. Oh my god, this oh, is his fuck. life? Oh man, damn it. And then very shortly thereafter, we see we get the sex scene with Alma. And mm-hmm. I talked earlier about how I felt that the the first tent sex scene was very carefully choreographed by Ang Lee and probably working with his actors as well to get across to get across in physical performance, story beats and plot. Same thing here. I absolutely love when he so he gets on top of Alma, he first thing he does is he turns off the light. There's a lot of of moments in this particular sex scene that directly echo that first one. There's no mm-hmm. firelight. There's this is a sex scene that is devoid of romance, kind of like mm-hmm. I feel about the first one. That's not a romantic thing. That's the dam bursting, no. and we just have to mm-hmm. fuck. This has got to happen. Just sexual energy. Yes, yeah. nothing's gonna stop this, but it's not romantic. Same thing here. It turns off the lights. Not only that, I've never, I don't think I've ever seen two actors so physically close to each other manage to create so much physical distance between each other. Yes. Ennis stays up on his elbows the whole time. He's like, he's Mm -hmm. like up on his elbows. Uh, He rolls, he, he ends up rolling her over. So she's face down, but also she the whole time has one hand around the back of his of his neck and is saying, uh, come here over and over. Come yeah. here. Come here. Come God on. Like get close. Trying to she's trying to close the space between the two of them. Mm-hmm. And he, but he absolutely will not. I love that physical performance. She's doing everything she can to eliminate the distance between them. And he's doing everything he can to what I don't know to maintain to that distance, distance to keep yeah, his right. defenses up. I honestly, I even feel like the 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 intro to this sex scene where he's sitting exhausted on the edge of the bed. I don't think he's as tired as he's playing. Mm. You know what I mean? I feel like this is literally what you know. It's that it's that old uh, that old trope of like oh, I've got a headache tonight, not tonight, dear. You know where the wife doesn't right. leave me alone. Mm-hmm. You're always pawing at me. Oh, I have a headache. Dude, that's what he's doing. He's like, well, yeah. Alma, I've it's been a long day at the ranch. Please don't make me. I really don't want to have sex with you. But he's not gonna say that because he has to keep up a certain type of a a certain type of life or an appearance out in the world. And that it, how horrible that he even has to do that with his wife. With his wife, yeah. Obviously, mm-hmm. he has to do it with society. But if he doesn't also lie to his wife about who he is it's not even what he wants or what he does it's who he is he can't 
Ennis is never himself except when he's with Jack. And that's that's a hard thing to sit with for two hours and fifteen minutes. Yes, it <laughs> for is. For sure. Um I like the Fourth of July uh biker shit kicking. Mm-hmm. But I wanted to kick this over to you guys. What do you think the purpose of that scene is? What are we demonstrating about Ennis and his character by having him beat the so, shit out of two bikers at the fourth? So I, I have I have a thought on that. Mm-hmm. Most of the time, the trope in film is the firework scene is when the lovers embrace and they kiss. We've seen it a thousand times. Mm-hmm. The kiss at the fairgrounds, the fireworks go off in the background. Which we're set to do here with with the with the husband and wife there at the fair. What's naturally supposed to happen? The lovers kiss. The fireworks go off in the background. Here, Jack doesn't. No, sorry, Ennis doesn't live that that life. Right. He lives a completely. That's not the fireworks for him. So that it changes to this other thing where it becomes violence, and we get him after he has defeated these two rednecks essentially he's standing up and we get this just him with the fireworks going his I'm gonna children show you crying. the picture right now because that's a note of mine you you um, have a note of it I, uh, just a a note that this i don't know if you guys can see this but yeah this is one of the most glorious shots i have ever seen in any beautiful film. i completely this agree shot from the ground almost looking up at ennis with the mm-hmm. fireworks in the background it's outstanding it's just stunning and they have and and elma in the background with the kids like pulling them away exactly they're they're so far apart from each other normally what would you see in a film those the 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 unit together with fireworks that's that's like a painting that is now incredibly iconic image one of my favorite things about that is while they are ostensibly looking towards each other they have their backs to each other as well yes also his head is turned over his shoulder looking back at her and because, because he's just beat up the bikers. Right. And because of the perspective, Alma is very small. And she has two children mm-hmm. under her arms. And I think mm-hmm. part of I think part of what we're meant to see here is she's I think she's meant to look in danger. I think this is showing there's something about first of all, I think the there's it's not a mistake that he blows up around a bunch of explosions. Mm-hmm. The first time this is the first time that we've seen Ennis not stiff jawed and super quiet and he's mm-hmm. really I'm just gonna may I borrow your lighter. He goes off, dude. He kicks the shit out of two dudes and is screaming at yeah. them in public. And this mm-hmm. is the first indication that we have that Ennis might be dangerous. And actually this will come back later when he almost hits Alma in the kitchen. Oh, oh, yeah. And I think it's important that we see here that there is this side to him, that there's... And this is this is one of the side effects of having all of that pent up in you. If you keep shaking a bottle, but you never open it, mm-hmm. eventually that lid is going to come off. And when it comes off, if you didn't crack that lid in a controlled way or let some of that pressure off, it explodes. And you're going to lose a hand, or you're going to get hit in the face, or... You're gonna blow your marriage apart and lose your kids. Mm-hmm. You know, like it's. It, you're right about that shot, though, dude. Like just seeing that again took my breath away. This is so unbelievably well shot. I have a also have a best of the breast nomination from this movie. Uh, Anne Hathaway. Anne Hathaway. <laughs> Hell yeah, it's Anne Hathaway in the back of that car. I my have a funny. God. I have a funny story about about this. Do tell. A moment. So for the, I don't want to say any names, but <clears throat> when I lived in Baltimore. I, I lived with Anne Hathaway's cousin. 
Really? And so, yeah. So we we would he's a movie fan and so we would occasionally get to talking about our favorite this our favorite that and we got on the uh, subject of our favorite love story movies Mm -hmm. and i started going off about brokeback mountain and he is like no i've never seen brokeback i won't watch it i don't want to watch i'm not gonna watch i'm like why what what's your aversion to watching brokeback mountain he's like i don't want to see annie's boobs They're only in there for like a hot second. I know, but he does he's not sure where they are. I oh, guess. I should have watched like, it with you and you could have done, done the like cover your eyes. Surprised by 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 Annie's boobs. You know, I Crazy, can see no man, she is so God so great control in I, that scene. I have a note about her right before this when she's at the rodeo and Jake Gyllenhaal or when Jack gives her her hat. Right? Mm-hmm. So when Je- and her name's Lorraine. Lorene. Lorene. When, when Jack, little girl in Childers, Texas. When Jack Lorene. gives Lorene her hat, Anne Hathaway. I said shades of Catwoman. There's there's a certain like sort mm-hmm. of da- dangerous devil may care wink and a smile. And I honestly believe that Anne Hathaway has one of. So there's some there are some actresses who are you know when they're like playing a femme fatale or like a a character who's meant to be sultry and sexy right where it's it's kind of always on, you know what I mean? Just by by just their sheer presence in the room, it's a come on. It's a sort of sultry. Anne Hathaway is not that, and she does it in this movie, and she does it in uh, The Dark Knight Rises. I don't think that that wink and a smile are just God's natural gifts to a beautiful woman. That's craft. That mm-hmm. wink. That Anne Hathaway, Anne Hathaway is, a is wonderful theater actress. Yes. And- She's like the type of theater actress that like went to theater camp and stuff. Yeah. I mean, she is so deep She's in it. Deep and in you it. Can yep. it from everything she does. Look, I'll say this about Anne Hathaway. She's been in some stinkers. Right. Uh, but she's but also... I never not enjoyed watching her in a movie. Absolutely. Like, I agree. She elevates everything that she's in. Don't even laugh. And I liked Princess Diaries. I thought it was good. <laughs> she was. Fun fact. She was I shooting was... Princess Diaries 2. At the same time as shooting this movie, she auditioned. She was 22, 22 in this movie. 20, 22. When dude, kind of her, blows my mind. her as in when, when, she, when she's playing like exhausted old gray haired woman, I would yeah, I would have said, I don't even know if she's 30 now. Yeah, she she's would be 38 now. She was 22 when she shot this movie. She auditioned uh-huh. for this movie in full costume for Princess yeah, Diaries Princess 2. Diaries she was dressed too. as a princess in full princess the makeup. Engagement. Mm-hmm. And they lied to Ang Lee and did not. Uh, confide in him what other films she'd been in because they were afraid that she wouldn't be cast because he would be she he would think that she was in like frivolous she films. She also and lied and said she could ride a horse. She didn't know how to ride, and in two months oh she learned. My, God. my favorite little Hit bit. Me, of, what do you know? My favorite little bit of horse riding trivia is Jake Gyllenhaal had to go to cowboy camp for a month. Yes, but Heath did not have to go to cowboy camp. because Heath Ledger grew up on a bunch of farms in Australia yeah. and he already yeah. was a cowboy essentially. Some uh-huh. some people look really good riding a horse. Heath Ledger looks really good riding a horse. Jake Gyllenhaal looks pretty goddamn good on a horse, too. Yes, he did play Ned Mm -hmm. Kelly. As it turns out, drinking half a pot of coffee to stay awake for an almost four and a half hour long podcast episode that ran well past two in the morning can be a bit trying for the bladder. So to spare you the trying experience of listening to the interminable splashing of piss in a toilet bowl because a certain podcast host who happens to be doing a silly voice for you at the moment forgot to mute his mic... Let's skip ahead a bit. So shortly after the 4th of July scene, 
uh, Ennis gets a postcard from Jack that's saying, essentially, I'm going to roll through town and uh, let's we should grab a beer. It's super innocent, super mm-hmm. innocuous. When Alma picks it up, she doesn't even think twice about it. I don't even think does. I don't think that he's ever mentioned to Jack because she asks who he is. Yeah, this has never been part of their conver- any conversation they've ever had. Right. No. And, he and, just says, fishing buddy. Me and Jack yep. was fishing buddies. I think it's interesting that that offhand lie becomes the basis for his relationship with Jack from that point on. But yeah. He never talks to Alma about Brokeback Mountain and ranching together or anything. It's always fishing buddies. Right. Yeah. And, and it's all the excuse is always, we're going to go fishing. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, uh, the first time that he goes out, I think he only has the pole. He doesn't even have the like. Oh, he he just grabs whatever he's got in the hallway yeah, that looks like a fishing pole. Yeah. Like, ah, oh, it's a stick. That'll work. Well, he's and he's got like he grab he doesn't even he grabs his toothbrush like in his yep. mouth and his jacket <laughs> and like yeah like a, the couple stick by of, the couple packs of smokes and well, a stick by the door. Doesn't he right. leave his pack of smokes for Alma to his Australian oh, yes. cigarettes? He's got his cigarettes in his pocket. So I think there's a a specific line in the story too, uh, a reasoning for that. Sure. Um, He says, Jack and me is going out to get a drink. Might not get back tonight. We get drinking and talking. Sure enough, Alma said, taking a dollar bill from her pocket. Ennis guessed she was going to ask him to get her a pack of cigarettes, bring him back sooner. Pleased to meet you, said Jack, trembling like a run out horse. Ennis said Alma in her misery voice, but that didn't slow him down on the stairs. And he called back, Alma, you want smokes? There's some in the pocket of my blue shirt in the bedroom. So he knew she was trying to get him to come home sooner. Right. And I think that's conveyed in the scene in the film. That's another oh, another one of the examples of Aang like perfectly putting the unspoken details from the story up on the screen there. Cause she does. You see Michelle Williams like sort of gesture to she, you know, kind of reach out with her hand like Annis, Annis. Right, right. You know, she calls after him a couple times and he doesn't answer the first time. She says, Annis, Annis. And that's when he goes, there's smokes in my shirt. He's already out the door. That's like an 80-yard off-screen line. Right. Um, and, I, it, and it's clear that she wants him to come home sooner. Like, buy me a pack of smokes and come home. I love that you – I'm really glad that you brought the story because you keep reading from the story. And I'm struck over and over again by what a direct um, adaptation this is. Oh, my God. Yeah, it, it is – page to screen i don't think it's it's very very rare but it's but it's not an instance yeah i don't think it's just there's not a lot left out either it's not like there's a bunch of it's a short story you know it's only 11 pages or 26 or something pages long but there's not it's not an adaptation where there's like oh yeah that whole section of the book they left out in the movie right Uh, it's pretty much all in there and it's pretty much beat for beat the exact way it's presented in the movie. And, and they didn't add a lot to the movie either that wasn't in the short story. What, what I think I've been, really as you go through it, the thing I think I'm most impressed by as far as the adaptation goes, and, and I think some of this has to do, of course, with the screenplay, but some of this has to do with Ang Lee's direction because and also the and the the performances too because when you read they drive in opposite directions and Ennis has to pull over obviously in this movie Ennis isn't in a truck which i think is an intentional decision to show that he's a, uh, even if they're pretty close to start he is slightly lower down the rung on economically 
But other than like little changes like that, which just reinforce the, the symbolism that Ang Lee's working in, one of the things that I've been most struck by as you read from the story is they always one of the things they always say about why you can't adapt a comic book is you don't have thought bubbles in a movie. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the, one of the, f- oftentimes one of the big failings, one of the reasons that we have that, f- you know, that, uh, um, God, I can't even think of what the word is, but it's, it's like a truism or whatever. Uh, the book was better than the movie. Ah, uh, the book was better. Uh, you should read yeah. the book. The reason that the book is usually better is because you get inside characters heads, you get in- intensely evocative language. And I think Carl earlier, you were talking about how beautiful, um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is. And I think yes. that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon is like martial arts poetry. So I think Absolutely. the fact that, that Ang Lee is able to be so expressive in cinematography, in choreography, in minute, subtle physical performance, when Heath Ledger hits his knees in that alley and he is, we see him clutch his stomach. We see him try to vomit but fail to do so. Yep. A lot of that if really evocative and beautiful writing that we see in the short story that normally would never translate to the screen actually translates to the screen. The small stuff that you'd think is just writing. Oh yeah, well y- you can describe the room and describe the scene, but when you shoot it in the movie, it's just going to be a room and a scene. But no, those it's all yeah, yeah. It's every detail from the story. Is it's right those there. screen. It's those. It, it reminds you. It's those screenplays that that win the Academy Award, yeah. and it rem, and, and it's when they when they show. I love it when they do this in the Academy Awards. Not to digress, but mm-hmm. um, oh, when, when they, they show when they show the thing and they, but they're yeah. reading the 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 stage direction. He mm-hmm. he hits his knees, pulling a, yeah. a, 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 and then you seeing that side by side with the action and it matches perfectly. Is why that movie wins the Academy Award for Best Adapted Screenplay. Right. One this, thing I, this is one of this would be I, that like highlight re- scene yeah. from from this, right? For like sure. Children yeah. of Men is another one that is just incredible that has yeah. all of those moments of how they convey that on film, right? When it's all of that like word bubble internal <laughs> thing happening. Right. One thing that yeah. I can do, but one thing I want to do now is look at the actual script. Like the yes. movie, I would love yes. to look at it side by side with the story and see how much of the stage directions in the screenplay are. Echo the, I bet they're fucking very close. Right the story, yeah, because you're reading this story and it's like you're reading stage directions. No, and you're exactly. Not dialogue between the characters. I mean, it is her prose. Annie's prose is so descriptive and evocative yeah. that it really is like reading stage directions. It's it's he did this and he was feeling this and max kind of what you were saying you can almost see on screen the thought bubbles coming out of the character's heads like you mm-hmm. can see ennis's thoughts right in that in that scene you know when he's grabbing the fishing tackle and stuff he's like oh i gotta get this i gotta get this but you can see his head's already halfway out the door because jack's out there and the only thing he wants is to get to jack but then his feet are still in the room because Alma's there and the kids are there and that's my home and that's my responsibility but I gotta yep. get out the door to Jack because if I don't catch him now he might get away from me again and it, right and, the, and the, all of that just in his frantic motions of grabbing stuff with the toothbrush in his mouth it's it's astounding and that second time when he goes out the uh, later when he's on his he's again running out the door and he's left his tackle box on the right. kitchen table you know like uh, talk about distracted he's ostensibly going on a fishing trip and he's left 
almost all of his fishing, all the gear fishing stuff in yeah. the in the fucking house you know like that would be kind of like front of your head I um, point out, how are you gonna fish without any you know without your tackle box or right whatever. she says i think she says aren't you forgetting something and he turns around and grabs the tackle box but <sighs> so to jump back when uh when he gets that that postcard from jack i think it's really interesting we have not seen ennis drink very much um, he's had a couple of sips of whiskey up on the mountain. He gets drunk one night, and that first night that he gets drunk is when he has sex with Jack for the first time. But other than that, Jack gets kind of tipsy. Jack will stumble and kind of fall over. Jack drinks a bunch of whiskey. But when Ennis finds out that Jack's coming to town, we see him drink like 10 beers. A lot, yeah. And he drinks, those, he drinks a shitload of beers sitting and looking out the window. He sucks down, I think, like... Yeah, eight or nine butt heavies just sitting there at the window waiting and waiting and waiting. Oh my god. Oh, yeah, he's well and good drunk before. Right. Yeah. Also, that pop in the that uh pop in the beer bottles with his Zippo lighter. Love that. Mm-hmm. Tiny detail, but having every time I've ever done it, now I see that and I'm like, Yeah, yeah, I know that yeah, trick. Yeah. Um right. so now I wanna talk let's talk about when Jack and Ennis come back together for the, and this is the first time that they've seen each other in four, three years, four years. Uh, four, I think, yeah. When th- that that moment is so amazing to me because Jack gets out of the car, Ennis goes out to like greet him, and they embrace. And up until right in this moment when they embrace, I would almost ha- like argue that that there's nothing necessarily sexual about the reunion so far. That is, I haven't seen you in four years, and, oh, man, I missed you so much. That's a that's a big, man, I missed yep. you hug. And you also don't know if anything's going to happen. You don't know exactly. if it was a one-time thing on Brokeback. They're both married now. Jack says as much. Families, right, exactly. And, and you think, well, maybe the rest of this movie is just going to be the two of them you know, quietly screaming under the surface, but never being right. able to express it again, right. like they did. Staring at each other across their respective dinner table, yeah, and yeah. what happens? I think Jack's specific line when they're in the hotel room in a, a few minutes here is, "I swear to God, Ennis, I had no idea we were going to get back into this, or something like yeah. that." Um, and then he says, "Yeah, I did." <laughs> um, so the we we were talking earlier about the those moments of subtle acting. This is the moment that I had in mind is when they reunite with each other and Ennis like shoves him into that stairwell and they start making out. I'm pretty sure this is the kiss where Heath Ledger almost broke Jake Gyllenhaal's nose. But my Mm -hmm. it's not even the kiss that I love so much. It's the kiss and then they part and then they kiss Mm -hmm. and then they they kind of part. And this is when Alma comes to the to the door and sees. (sighs) Yeah. Which we'll get into Alma in just a moment, but the moment that I'm talking about is when they finally break apart and Ennis is ready to take Jack up the stairs and he rubs his face against Jack's face. It's like his brow and it's it's somewhere between like the way that a cat will put its scent on you if it likes you, where it'll just kind of nuzzle against you. Mm-hmm. And it's also, I'm, I can't kiss you anymore because we've done this. We're already at risk. But it's that unwillingness to to break that intimacy or to move skin away from skin. That that lingering 
longing for Jack and that unwillingness to 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 that unwillingness to break contact. I want to keep touching you. I want to feel the warmth of your cheek. I want to feel the bristle of your you know you've been driving for a day. Like all of that comes across to me in just that the way that Heath Ledger will not let his face leave Jack's face is just amazing to me. I think it's a, totally beautiful. And I think I, I think that in a way, the first time I saw this, Alma's or Michelle Williams's performance was lost on me because I was so swept up in mm-hmm. the sort of like subtle, intimate physicality of Heath mm-hmm. Ledger and Jake Gyllenhaal. But I think Michelle Williams does some really she's incredible work here. Yeah, she's absolutely incredible. And you said you wanted to do like a little Alma, a sort of oh, like an yeah, Alma spotlight. I, do you want to do like a character overview from? Yeah, this? I think so. I, I think she's just a fascinating character in that she, you know, we see them at their wedding. We see them sledding at the picnic, like these moments of marital bliss, so to speak, where she looks really happy. Ennis doesn't always look super there. You know, he's sort of distant. We talked about that right. a lot of the we see that sex scene um i i think it's interesting sorry to keep pulling out the story no do honestly like the comparison between the story and the movie has been one of my favorite parts of doing this so far um Um, agreed i don't think i've ever read it with my eyeballs i've listened to it when i listen to close range and i listen you can actually just listen to it by itself it's on hoopla just as a standalone story i think it's like two or three hours that sex scene just the end of that sex scene um has the line um, you know, she, it's, I think in here it's talking about, he's like fingering her basically yeah. and then t- turns her over mm-hmm. and he, and it says working at it until she shuddered and bucked against his hand and he rolled her over, did quickly what she hated. And mm. you can see her expression in the movie. It's that thing right there. Right. Where this has happened before. Right. Like, I don't think the first time that he's you know turned her over like that i think this is a semi-frequent occurrence or at least definitely happened before and in it i just thought that was interesting from the story where it specifically calls out that she hates that because of that lack of connection right you talked about earlier she's not looking him into the eyes as they make love she's turned over and facing the pillow while he does what she hated you know and um, not in a non-consensual way, but just a, this is not how I want sex. Exactly. Right. This her is not her needs are definitely not being met on no, any level in this whole thing. No, I was going to say physically, emotionally, like financially, like, in any way. I actually think it is important. Um, there's a moment later on when they, God, I wish I, I wish I'd written, I'm sure Connor, you might have it like memorized, but the, uh, I, I love the moment. And hate the moment when they it's the second sex scene between Ennis and Alma when they're in bed. And it's one of the only times that we see them having sex face to face. And I think it's really interesting that when they're I, I actually think it's also like Ang Lee using f- uh, physical orientation and space to you as a symbol again, because this whole marriage, when they get close to each other, either Ennis turns away or Ennis flips her over. They never are seeing eye to eye. They never look at each other. Actually, a lot of this movie, even when they're sharing space, 
Alma will be looking at Ennis, and Ennis will be looking at something else. If it's not Jack, it's the TV. One of my favorite scenes in this movie is when he's, like, sprawled all the way out on the couch smoking cigarettes, and she's like, I want to go out, and he's like, nah. Mm-hmm. And that that scene right there that I'm talking about is the preface to the sex scene that ends in their divorce. And mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting that one of the first times that we see them both fully nude, because in the first sex scene, Alma's not, I don't think she's naked. Yeah, she's clothed. Yeah, she's clothed. Mm-hmm. So when... And then they kind of go at it from there But yeah she's not naked So this second time they're both naked They're stripped all of their All of their clothing all of the things That they used to cover and lie And hide are gone and they're naked And they're face to face and they're eye to eye And Alma for the first time Alma like speaks up And she says you know with the money so tight I don't know how I I feel a little Scared about not using protection And Heath Mm. and, And Ennis says if you don't want to have my kids, I'll gladly leave you alone. And she says, she said, I'll have them. Have them if you them. Right. I'll have them if you support them. And that's devastating. Yeah. Cutting blood. I'd have them if you'd support them. And, and I don't think she means financially because she's talking about money right there. I think she means emotionally. Emotionally. If yeah. If you'd support me emotionally and be my husband. Right. Or or the moment when, you know, uh, there's that really shitty moment when uh, Ennis follows her out and he's like, ain't nobody eating anything that you didn't cook or something like that. Like, basically, you need to be here to fix my supper. Oh, next to the swing set when she has to work a double shift at the. the Right. And one of the one of the things that's really hard about Ennis's character, Ennis is a very complex character because you feel so bad for him, but also you occasionally hate him. Fucking hate him. Right, he's horrible. Yeah, that's, that's my relationship with him in this flick. Absolutely. And there's a great quote about uh, I, I can't remember who said it, but I've quoted it on this podcast before. Um, there, uh, the the original quote is something like, uh, "Men, modern men, live lives of quiet desperation." And I wrote that down, and then as like sort of an addendum, I wrote down all of the ways that we all the ways we find to rope ourselves to misery. To try and find happiness in one spot Mm -hmm. And that's like the story Of these two men They do they're trying to do What their society And what their cultural upbringing Demands of them But all of those things There's another phrase called the gilded cage Um, I think it comes from Betty Friedan's book The Feminine Mystique But it's when uh, you know you've got your Or it at least deals with It is commenting on the same concepts As that book which are when you've got the big beautiful house and the car and two kids and well now you've got to pay for two kids and a big beautiful car and a big house i actually know people whose like whole their whole thing when they were young was they want to travel they want to go see the world but now they can't cuz they have a mortgage and they got to pay their rent and wow plane mm-hmm. tickets are expensive uh, or like the honestly the big one like Bird and I have no intention of ever having children nothing against mm-hmm. it it's just not what we want to do it's not for us yeah and one of the reasons is is we're both artistic types we're always mm-hmm. fucking broke so <laughs> imagine if we had to like kids could I go off and try and shoot a movie or could I like take a month off of work so that I could focus on writing a novel or could we travel to dude it's hard enough with a dog to like go travel the world now imagine that you've got the expense and the yeah imagine Connor if you had children talking mostly to you there there how do you imagine this so you're saying if I had 
if I had a, a child, dude, it'd be. A, a, imagine how fucked up it'd be if you had twins or something, like two children. That'd be battle. nuts. <laughs> Crazy. No, like I said, yeah. obviously, like I said at the beginning of my little my thing is, <laughs> I'm look, I'm totally irresponsible, constantly broke. I'm a wanderlust, scatterbrained moron. Connor, you Sounds are. Like a dream. I'd love to be bad. <laughs> that is that is my dream, and that's what I'm living. And part of that is deciding not to have kids. Connor, that is yeah. not you. What I get mostly from having known you for a couple of years now and seeing your Instagram posts and getting to getting the privilege of spending time with you and your beautiful family is you are a very responsible and phenomenally you're you are an honestly a great parent, dude. Like, oh, sorry. Please. You're, you're, did you want me to say something mean? Like, I don't want to make you cry or anything. No, no I, I appreciate that. I, I don't always feel like it. We don't need to turn this into my therapy session, but I don't always feel like a great parent. It is definitely, Carl, you can speak to this, I'm sure. I sure a can. Every day. Uh, every day is a new day to try and correct the mistakes of the day before and try and be a better parent than you were the day previously. But I get what you're saying because that was me. Um, I was the guy that wanted to travel the world. I still want to travel the world. I just have to figure out how me and my wife are going to save enough money that we can take our kids with us when we do that. But there is a sacrifice that you make when you decide to have children. Right. And I actually applaud your decision to not have children because I think a lot of times people who A, don't want kids and B, I'm not saying the second one is you, but have no business having children do because it's the thing to do. And my advice to anyone who doesn't absolutely want to have kids is don't have kids because right. Right. not people in the world. And if it's not something that is part of your deep desires, like I always wanted to be a father. I've known that since I was in kindergarten. Right. If that's not something you want to do, don't do it. Right. <laughs> and By all means, your life, my God, you, like there are other ways to find happiness in the world. Watching this movie and seeing Ennis with the girls, like you girls need to push or something. Or, or whatever. One of the reasons that I, not early on, like I, I, when I was growing up, I thought I wanted kids. I thought I wanted kids right through 20, 21. It was after that that I decided that I didn't. And part of the reason that I decided that I didn't was knowing myself, knowing a lot of stuff about myself, and knowing some stuff, you know, like knowing some people in my family and how they ended up having kids. One of mm-hmm. my big it's not even a big fear. It's just something that I suspect. And I suspect that if I had kids, knowing how I operate, how I'm broke, how I flit around and what I really care about is just being artistic and I'll work two shifts a week if it means I can have free time, I suspect my kids would have had a father kind of, not obviously not as bad as Ennis is. Like I'm not going to, I would never be screaming at Bird or anything like that, but I think I would be absent a lot of the time. I don't think I have enough sp- space and attention in my brain because I'm so in my own head all the time and so wrapped up in my projects and my ideas. I feel like I, these, those kids would not have had, my kids would not have had a very good upbringing. And I didn't, that was not anything I ever wanted to do. I didn't ever want to subject anyone to that. So, and that, that is a, again, I think that's a really noble thing for you to say. And mm -hmm. I also think it's nothing to apologize for. Not that you were apologizing, but I, no, I I, if I'd had kids, I'd be apologizing right now. Right. No. I yeah. think a lot of people feel like this default of like having to explain why they don't want kids because it's, again, it's quote unquote, the thing to do in society. Yeah. You get married, you have kids. And the people who have made that decision for themselves that says, this is not something I want 
as a part of my life plan, I think often feel like they have to justify it. And mm. I think that was a great justification for it. But also like, again, as I said before, if you don't want kids, you have no business having kids because right. there are a lot of people who didn't want kids that have them now. And oh boy, I'm I wanted kids and it is fucking backbreaking work. Like <laughs> right. I love my children. That's another thing. I'm little... lazy as fuck. <laughs> I'm so no, lazy. I love death. I'm so tired at the end of every day. <laughs> I wouldn't wish this on anyone that didn't absolutely want to have right. children. You right. know, like it is I have a hard a... enough time like t- taking care of board games and <laughs> stuff. <laughs> You're like I can't paint the kids and the board, the miniatures. And my miniatures. I've got miniatures. No, Danielle and I are in the same 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 boat as Max and Bird. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. Just I it... fucked up the first one, and I don't want to fuck up another one. No, Gabe is a darling. Gabe's awesome. Oh, Gabe. thanks. I just didn't have I didn't have as much time with him as I would have liked, and a lot of that is on me. Listener, if you want to hear me saying just really things I shouldn't say in front of a minor, you can go back. To season one, listen to our drive angry drive episode angry. with my and son. Although I would like to <laughs> mea culpa, I d- I did ask. I was like, Gabe, I'm Carl. Can uh-huh. I? You know what I'm gonna say, and Gabe is right there. Is it cool that I say this? And you're like, Yeah, go for it. Go, yeah, for, go it. for it. Like, so he's fully in this woman's vagina, getting electrified, and Gabe's like, Oh my god, daddy. And I'm like, Daddy, oh. I don't, I don't know if I can hear this right now, daddy. <laughs> I'm like I ch- I checked with your parents. It's on record. It's this. Yeah. Is- your parent is here. Is right. There, your parent is present. Parent and or legal guardian. <sighs> um, it was a parent. He should not have been there that day. <laughs> and if you want to hear me say things I absolutely shouldn't say to a minor, come by my house any week on like Thursday around three o'clock when I'm just. <laughs> absolutely cut at the end of my rope still have a day to go in the week while my wife is working it's like no, I'm kidding. things like kids. you would you would fit them. into a stock pot and boy i'm sure things like that yeah i do say on a daily basis i'm going to eat you right now and then sort of pick my baby up and go <laughs> well with cheeks like that uh i think you sent when you texted the picture of the twins bird was like how do you ever have room for meals i would just be eating those cheeks all day long delicious little chubby cheeks they're very cute speaking speaking i know i was like all right how do we get from like the adorable cheeks of connor's children back to a horribly abusive father and bad husband now i want halibut cheeks oh god (laughs) you ever had halibut cheeks they're fucking delicious dude fish tongue is where it's at it's a little bit right under here anyway Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. so when they after they go back i think it's after they go back out for their second fishing trip no, it's it's the it's when they go on the first fishing trip and they're sort of like hanging out by the fire and this is the that actual, right, hotel room. No, yeah, yeah, the actual fishing trip and it's where they're they're kind of sitting by the fire. Ennis actually smiles. It's one of those moments where Heath Ledger's been so mis or I'm not Heath Ledger, but Ennis has been so miserable for so long. Seeing him smile kind of breaks your heart. But there's this great yeah. moment where Jack brings Alma up and it's one of the few times that he does in the entire movie. And because he's trying to convince Ennis that a life together would be good. And, you know, Jack says, oh, yeah, yeah, this life that you got with Alma, that sounds really great. And Ennis says, you shut up about Alma. This ain't her fault. Mm -hmm. This is that weird fucking thing about the Ennis character where you go through so much hating him. But then you realize that a lot of the reasons that you hate him for are things he hates himself for as well. Exactly. 
there's a, there's so there's a self-loathing there that is just just underneath the surface well it's because he doesn't the only per the only time he ever really knows who he is is when he's with jack right and and i think that he is well-intentioned and wants to try to do the right thing and it was just such a confusing thing for him like it's oh man it's just it's like his heart is with jack but his home is with alma. is with alma well yeah. said his responsibility very well said and the girls and yeah there's most a, of his life devoted to taking care of him but his heart's still there with jack it's, you know. there's a line shortly after the you shut up about alma this ain't her fault and where the the guys are talking about why they can't be together what is the f- source of this why can't we just do this why can't we just fully give in and and why can't we do that why can't we go live a life together jack essentially asks why can't we go and start a ranch and live together just as like guys living together and ennis says yeah there was there was a couple of guys down where i used to live who lived together and he's like and they weren't i think he says something like they weren't weak or he was a tough old tough old bird or something like that right and then the they talks about how one day these two men who were living together not as an openly gay couple but as just two guys who owned a ranch together but everyone it was like open secret kind of thing is how it sounds right and he the line is and uh they beat him with a tire iron spurred him up and drug him around by his dick till it fell off and it comes so that line, that story comes so out of nowhere. Not only is the content shocking, but the offhanded way in which Ennis presents it to Jack. And we find out why he presents it in such an offhand way because he was callously exposed to it as a nine year old boy. Yeah. His father mm-hmm. took him out to see the corpse of a dead, murdered gay man to yep. as an example of why That's you, what happens. That's right. Don't grow up. He said, Dad made sure I seen it. Hell, for all I know, he done the job. Yeah. Is that another one straight out of the story? Yeah. Yep, Yep. that's straight out of the story. But he doesn't know for sure whether or not his dad was involved. Right. But the – and it's not gone into more than that. And that's, again, part of that sort of beautiful, subtle knife of this film, which is, you know, we don't know whether Jack's dad killed this guy. But but the fact that – not Jack, Ennis. The fact that Ennis – even entertains the notion that his dad would murder a gay person because they were gay. Think about what that had instilled in Ennis all through his childhood. And now as an adult, I imagine your father showing you a potential murder victim of his would have Mm -hmm. pretty astounding repercussions for your understanding of yourself and your sexuality. And I mean, my, I have a, I mean, I just wrote next to it. Fuck. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, that's insanity. <laughs> and then I have there's another sort of beautiful line right after it because Jack is also stunned by this. He's taken aback by this. And he says, "Well, what are we going to do?" Because I think in some way he by hearing that story, he understands that Ennis is not going to come around on this issue. Ennis is never nope. going to be his. And I think this is where we start to see Jack putting on the clothes Point. that his wife yep. wants to buy him and where we see Jack become a combine salesman and stop well, he said he stopped rodeoing before this, but he really gets away from like the cowboy life. And I think part of that is he has started to not move on from, but allow himself to sort of fade Pack out. him away. Yeah, from 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 Brokeback Mountain and from that first inciting incident, he's gonna grow and develop and change because Ennis has told him with this anecdote 
in no uncertain terms, we will never be together the way you want to be together. That's never going to happen. And that's the moment, this is the moment in the movie when Jack really starts to change. But there's a, there's a beautiful line before that starts to happen when he says, well, what are we going to do about this then? And Ennis says, if you can't fix it, Jack, you got to stand it. And Jack says, for how long? And he goes, as long as we can ride it. There ain't no reins on this one. And there's no reins on this one. That is just, that is my favorite line in this movie, is as long as we can ride it, there ain't no reins on this one. Because what, it's it's a metaphor in their language, which is so. It's rodeo in language. It's rodeo in language. And you get the you get a real sense of what this relationship feels like on the inside. It mm-hmm. feels like trying to ride a bucking horse with no reins, or or a, a horse, a, a runaway horse, running at full speed, and all you've got, and there's no saddle, and there's no reins, and all you can do is twist your fingers down into its hair, and clamp down, and just pray that it doesn't kill you. You know, like that's. That's this these these two men. That's their relationship for twenty mm. years. Imagine the toll that would take on you. But imagine how high the highs. You know what I mean, man? Right. Like, with yeah. the with the we don't have your... to imagine very hard because we get it shown to us in a very clear and concise way. Yeah, and in it, this in this flick, right? It's I I love that. Not only did the performances show us that, but we also get that in the exact beautiful poetic language of the story it's that same thing mm-hmm. where the the unspoken in the story somehow manages to wait make its way onto the screen too it's it's actually astonishing how much of the unspoken subtext of the story directly translates into the movie did you did you guys notice that after that fishing trip we start to intercut between jack and ennis more whereas after the first time they leave broke back we stay with ennis almost the entire time and we get yeah, well, we do get a brief, brief little flash of Jack, Jack rodeo. Yeah, we yeah. get a brief flash of Jack rodeoing, but this is where we start cutting between Jack and Ennis more frequently, and I think it's specifically to start introducing this concept of Jack's growing wealth and Ennis's rut of poverty. But also, and my my note on this is neither of them are happy because they find themselves inside the hollowness of other people's dreams. <sighs> And the only the only way that's, that's a fucking sentence, brother. Holy shit! <laughs> um, and it's do you remember when? So we we see those those intercuts, and we get those cold color palettes, and we see their misery. But when they go back, um, when they go back to Brokeback, or when they go on these fishing trips, the cinematography changes. And one of the shots that I noted, especially after seeing these these intercuts of them being unhappy despite Jack becoming wealthy and Ennis getting a family, um, when we cut back to Brokeback, we see horse hooves on moss that is so rich and so lush and so green that after this weird pastel cold color palette of the real world that we've seen, the moss is almost too beautiful to look at. And, and what I wrote down was dot, 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 and the happiness you find inside your own. And and there's something very tragic to me about Brokeback Mountain and about their fishing trips. They don't always go to Brokeback. They often go to mm-hmm. like people's cabins or off to a lake somewhere. But when they're together, they're happy. But that's a dream. And outside of these little fishing trips is reality, you know? And that's a bummer. And this is where the divorce happens, too. Yep. It's right after the horse hooves on the on the moss when they they find that happiness that's when we get the official divorce filings and 
this is this is another place where this movie takes an unusual turn for me because now we start to focus on Jack a little bit more and we get more of his arc here, you know? Um, what do you guys think of the turning the TV off, turning the TV on, turning the TV off? The, the... I think that's an incredible scene because it's a few times we see Jack like stand up for himself and exactly be a quote unquote the man of the house right sort of thing he i i think we glossed over uh the birth of jack's child when the grandpa isn't he just a spitting image of his grandpa which might be like one of the creepiest lines of all time <laughs> yeah that's weird i i didn't wasn't quite sure if i want to even attempt to unpack that one because it's just too fucking creepy well it's it's just that like you know well they're, they're, well they're 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 removing him from the whole scenario right. as the father like no he looks just like his grandpa fuck you we don't you're you're whoever you're yeah, a like, sperm donor we well, don't give a shit about you they forgot something in the car and the dad um and uh Lorene's dad just tosses jack the keys and he's like go get it it's like he's like he's he you know, it, yeah. yeah, like he calls him a nickname too. I can't remember what he calls him, but he doesn't call him Jack. He says like Sparky will get it or something, mm-hmm. or like Rodeo will get it. I think that maybe he says Rodeo will go get it. Yeah, it, it's like it, a nickname. Like you won't even call him Jack, right? It's it. He he totally infantilizes Jack. Yes. Um, and then what we we get this great scene of two Thanksgivings, and we start with Jack. And the contrast between the two is amazing because we see Jack finally stand up to the person who's been hurting him for 10 years or 15 years. And when we cut over to the Ennis one, which I want to talk about, but I want to get, I want to talk about this TV scene for a second. But then when we get to Ennis, it's not Ennis who makes a stand. Alma finally stands up for herself and it goes the other way. And I think that's really interesting. But so what happens is they're, they're, getting ready to carve the turkey so they pull the turkey out of the oven and set it down and jack goes to carve it and Lorene's dad takes the carving knife and fork away from him and says like oh no the man of the house or whatever is going to cut the bird yep. it's jack's fucking house so Lorene says uh well let's turn the tv off you know we're, we can watch the we can watch the game it's a football game we can watch the game after it's the lions getting their ass handed to them it's yeah, not it's not likely. really but that's what it should be um, i mean the money's on that being accurate <laughs> but uh yeah well we can watch the game after dinner jack gets up turns the tv off goes back over grandpa sets down the carving utensils and goes and turns the tv back on says boys should watch football which is one mm. of those especially for what is this supposed to be 70 five somewhere in the 70s right yeah mid to late 70s yeah and that is one of those like boys wear blue girls wear pink yep boys should wear football or boys should watch football and boys are tough and it really is that sort of like that sort of like dated gender commentary thing that we were talking about at the very beginning of the episode where even though this is the 70s and this is supposed to seem really bigoted it just sounds like something you hear now it just yeah. sounds like 2020 or 2021. God, it can't be 2020. I can't do that year anymore. Um, <laughs> but Jack gets back up and goes over and turns the TV off. And Grandpa is like, "Well, if you want to play that game, there's something you else." Down. You sit down before I knock your ignorant ass into next week. I fucking love it. Mad shout out, by the way, to the actor who played. I didn't. Write, I don't think I got his name, but the guy who plays yeah. Lorene's yeah. dad. The way that he deflates, there is genuine fear in that actor's eyes. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. And it's because like, I'm about to get punched at Thanksgiving. Yeah. He deflates, like you just said. He's like, yeah. You know. So well, he, I don't <laughs> think he'd ever had anyone stand up to him because he's all bluster but no backbone. And Jack is a really interesting character because even though he's there is something else that Jake Gyllenhaal has happened or that Jack has happened that Ennis doesn't, which is Jack puts on weight. He gets a little paunchy. He gets a little bit sure of a belly going on, but Ennis stays lean and rangy the whole time because what is he doing? He's castrating calves and doing cattle drives in the Tetons. He's working yep. hard, that, and Jack... That's right out of the story as well. It's specifically mentioned that Ennis always remains his wiry frame, whereas Jack puts on weight and grows the mustache as he gets older. Right. The Watching them change, dude, that's so awesome that like all of that stuff is just pulled straight from this story, but it translates so well. That actor who plays the dad is the L.A. bartender in Leaving Las Vegas. Graham Beckel is his name. Ah, well done. Beginning when he goes into the the bar in L.A., that's it's the same actor. The distinction of being in two of the most depressing films we've ever watched, and two of the episodes I've been on. That's true. Wow. Okay, we got to look deep. Also in in L.A. Confidential, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. Oh my God. Wait. Does he play? He plays the. uh, He is it. His name starts with an S, right? Who's he play? Who's he in LA? Stensland. Stensland. Yeah, he's the cop who gets murdered in Act One. Oh my God! Wow. Okay, that's kind of that's kind of eerie. Come for the conversation. Stay for the synchronicities. I know, right? I'm getting spooky over here. Um. When so when we cut over to Ennis's Thanksgiving, what did you think of the difference between the the fork and the manual knife as opposed to the 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 electric? Yeah. I think it's interesting because even though it's like supposed to be new technology, what I immediately it's really think, shitty. It's trashy. It's yeah. the difference between like the blue bloody class to like, well, I got this knife that does the work for me, and it just. Here's a question though, Ennis. Um, he's at Elma's house, the house that he used to have with Elma. Right. Yep. So I think that knife belongs to the grocer that she marries. I don't think that's Ennis's knife. I don't think he brought that knife. It's just the type of like it's super fancy cuz I'm a rest uh, I'm a I'm a manager of a grocery store. Yep. Grocery store. Check out this electric knife. It's brand new. We just got them in the store. You know, that sort of like used car salesman sort of Yep. Uh, right. It's of like here's the newest gadget sort it's of It's like thing. a traveling salesman like oh yeah. It's very use like a buck knife than a fucking electric I, it's very yeah. raising Arizona to me. Yes, you know it's like very, very terrible. It's, it's so very clearly not anything that Ennis would ever have in a kitchen of his. So he's it's, being it's a different family, being erased from his own absolute life. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He's not the man of the house anymore. He's not cutting the turkey. I think it is. Isn't it the grocer, the one that cuts the turkey yes. with yep. the knife? Yeah. Um. So. We get a bit. Let's. We've been talking about Alma a little bit. I want to talk. I want to talk a bit about Michelle Williams's performance in the kitchen, when she says when she tells him the story about the note. I tied the note onto your fishing line. Devastating. The way that she, you can see. We've talked a little bit about how like the subtle performances of Heath Ledger and oh what a genius. We haven't talked that much about Michelle Williams. And honestly, it's because neither of the women are in this movie a ton because they're not the focus, but they both give phenomenal performances though, both of the women, despite how little they're in the movie. They're 
incredible. Absolutely. They make they make perfect use of the time that they're given on screen. And this is one of my favorite moments because talk about subtlety in a performance. It reminded me of, um, oh God, Carl, it reminded me of uh, Good Morning Vietnam mm. when he's telling jokes to the soldiers to make them laugh, but at the same time he's, his heart is breaking because all these men are going to die. Yep. And so he's being happy and heartbroken at the same time. And I, one of my favorite moments here is you can see Alma wanting to stop at the end of every sentence, but she says the yeah. next sentence. Yeah. It's, it's, you can see the momentum. It's, it's what it, what it is. I think is these are things from the first time she saw Jack and Ennis kiss. These are things that have been building and bottling oh, okay. inside her. And it's when breaking, this is all of the emotion. It, exactly. She's bottled up for Five years now however long it's been it's all coming out yeah it's in, a, it's amazing man because incredible monologue she gives that first once that first sentence comes out you can see and you see ennis too in the background and this scene is not heath ledger's scene even when he goes big and violent and looks like he's gonna hit her this is her oscar scene you know this is the, yeah. the oscar real but it's actually a good one it's not like the Right, you like know, the the, the like rubber, st- you know, whatever. Yeah, right, exactly. No, this is the one that I think I want to say she got nominated for this. I, I don't think she won, but she throws out that first sentence, and Ennis kind of stiffens a l- tiny bit. But then once that first sentence comes out, the second sentence comes out, and then mm-hmm. she starts to her face starts to screw up because it, of of the pain of letting these things out finally. And I love the I love this arc because it's like a parabolic arc up to this beautiful, horrifying crescendo. And part of it is she starts to she starts to cry, and you can hear that every period at the end of a sentence, she wants it desperately to be the last one, and here comes another one, and she can't she's powerless to stop these recriminations or these revelations from coming out. And it's when hurting he, her, it's too. It's yeah, painful. And my fa- my favorite moment God, is the obviously the the peak is the most powerful moment. But fuck, man, when en- when Ennis grabs her and raises his fist and cocks it back, mm. Michelle Williams has stark terror on her face. I believe in that moment that she believes that Heath Ledger's going to hit her. She looks terrified, but she doesn't stop talking. She doesn't, th- no, because we're beyond that now. We're beyond you raise your fist and I bottle it back up. Here comes another fucking line. And if you're going to hit me this time, then this is when you're going to hit me. And he does. He he cocks back and then he mm-hmm. cocks back again because she didn't shut up, but he won't hit her. So mm-hmm. he goes to throw the fist and he doesn't. And then he like opens it and he makes another one. Like, I'm telling you, woman, every time he does that, she says another sentence at him. Like, if you're going to mm-hmm. hit me, you're going to hit me. But all of this is coming out now. And they, god damn, dude, the peak of that scene, the 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 place we get to on an, from an emotional standpoint and tension, and when he storms out, it, you breathe out for one, you don't even breathe out all the way because it's not resolved. There's no resolution. Mm-hmm. It leaves you teetering in just, it doesn't leave you teetering. It leaves you on your knees in the absolute wreckage. Because when they got divorced, they're still cordial. He's still coming around for Thanksgiving. But that kitchen is the end. That kitchen is everything came down just now, and now we're down in it. And there's blood on us. Last time we see Alma, I don't. I don't think we see her again. No, nope. no, we see the the grown daughters, but we don't see Alma again. We don't see Alma again. Right. Shout out, by the way, grown daughters. Um, shout out to 
Kate Mara. Kate if you, Mara? Yeah, yeah, if you watched American yep. Horror Story season one, she is the uh, cards or yeah, right, right. I've never seen House of Cards. I know her as the like jilted student lover of the psychologist or the psychiatrist guy, who or yeah. um the singing uh movies. Or is that somebody else? The sing the singing movies. Doesn't she do the cup song? Or I'm thinking somebody Anna else. Kendrick. You're thinking of Anna. Oh Kendrick. God damn it! It's perfect. <laughs> That's okay. But she is the sister of Rooney Mara, who uh, we're going to talk about in a later movie. I think. Uh, I believe two from now, one. right? The third film. I think it is. It's the a portrait one, right? No, no, no. She's in uh, uh, the other one. The next one we're doing. I oh, believe. the the. Oh God! One because she's, she's dating uh, still the lead of that movie, and I believe that's where they met. Oh, interesting. She's oh, very yeah, briefly. Well, she she plays his ex in that movie. Stay tuned for more Kate Mara no. next week <laughs> on we're, Measuring we're, Flex. Rooney Mara does her sister. Oh, Rooney Mara does not Kate Mara. That's, that's what I'm saying. Correct. Right? Yeah, Kate Mara. You just have to watch if you you just got to get through uh, American Horror Story season one or House of Cards. <laughs> <laughs> or Pitch Perfect, which <laughs> not correct. She's not in that. Anyway. Um, that would be Anna Kendrick. Yes. Correct. Uh, what is what is the end of? I just want to point out. I fully believe Michelle Williams is the only actress who could have delivered the line that she ends that monologue with, where she says in just like a screaming whisper, she says, "Jack Twist, Jack Nasty, Jack Twist." <laughs> Jack Nasty. Jack I did have a little bit. That is straight out of the story. Jackson, that, nasty. Line, yeah, that line moment. is out of the story, but Jack Twist, Jack Nasty. Jack Nasty. I, you know, I'm I'm ambivalent about that. I it could either be genius or it could be a little bit goof troop, depending. I yeah. think on the day that I watch it, I liked. I it didn't it didn't hit for me. Yeah, that's that was the line. Well, no, no. The peak was got her the nomination. Jack Nasty is why she didn't win. Jack Nasty. Can she just say Jack Nasty? Jack Nasty. Like, oh, the rest of that was so good, but Jack Nasty. Jack you didn't go up there to fish. Jack Nasty. Jack Nasty. That, it is that. It's the little, it's the little like vibrato I'm on I'm laughing nasty. too loud for what the nasty. time that it is in an apartment complex. Nasty. <laughs> That line, though, and again, that line is straight out of the story verbatim, but it's like, it's almost like she doesn't know what to call him. Yeah. So there's like a, a split second, like, Jack Nasty. Like, she's just searching for a word to describe what her husband has been doing with this man that she witnessed all these years ago. And she, it's like the only... The only way she can put it into words is like nasty. It's you grabbing know, like, at words, and that's the one that happened to fly out of her I don't mouth. Know. It, it is, you know, interesting. It, it, fucking dime. It's beautiful. It is. It's an outstanding film, and I I like that that take on it too. That it's the first word that she can grab because these these are thoughts that she's never expressed or given voice to before. So she's in new territory here. I actually that kind of strengthens it for me because that's one of the first things that she says. Once she starts unbottling. So she's never said out loud, my husband has a sexual relationship with a man. She's never spoken those words to anyone. This is the first time she's ever admitted this to herself or to anyone else. Like she saw what she saw and turned away and went back in the house and, and they went on a bunch of fishing trips and that's it. She's never seen anything else. So, right. but she well, can't get it out of her head. Including fish. Yeah. Yeah. Right. She's yeah, not got a bunch of brown. Um, do you know that said 
Uranus. Bring back some fish. Love, Alma. After the blow-up, after that oh, big crazy blow-up in the kitchen, Ennis becomes... A, he goes from like a, a sort of like romantic tragic character with like really rough edges to a fully tragic and kind of depressing character and i'm sp- thinking specifically about his relationship with the with the bartender yeah that's just depressing from beginning to end what now with uh linda cardellini yes yeah 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 he um when he's dancing when she like makes him come dance like come on over and dance and when they well i'm thinking i'm thinking about the scene when we see kate mara come visit and she's sitting across from um, this uh, this waitress and talking. Do you think that I don't know that daughter's name? But do you think Kate Mara knows that? Yeah, I think. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I think there's a implication that she knows he's gay, and she's okay with it, or not gay, or whatever. She knows about him and Jack, right? And she's okay with. It, but I think that's why she's trying to steer her away. Yeah, I, yeah. I, you know, she, not so subtle terms as like, I don't know if you're right for my dad or whatever. Right? No, well, she she knows that there's no chance in hell this is going to work out for this woman at all. Right. God damn, the way that he reveals, the way that Ennis reveals his relationship with this bartender to Jack is, I'm putting the blocks to this waitress. Yeah. yeah. Which is like, that, that relationship is kind of not important. There's no name it's not. Nope. I'm seeing. I'm dating this I'm, waitress and putting, putting the blocks, the blocks to. to that is something else. That's um, pretty gnarly. There's this performance of so when uh, Kate Mara is around, when his daughter's there, and the bartender's like, "Oh, come on, dance like we did that first night." Remember, I wrote down he's not dancing; he's tending to his cigarette. Because mm-hmm. she's like trying to like slow dance with him, and he's got his head over her shoulder, and he's trying not to ash on her, but he's also like taking little sips off it here and there and he's like his he's he's got his arms around her but they're not touching her his elbows are kind of out and it's like disinterested distracted and distance it's mm-hmm. and it's like pretty much for the rest of this movie is kind of a bummer to be honest there's yeah. not a whole lot of happy after the kitchen scene um yeah just it, it's that, um, just to reference the story again that bartender is one sentence in the story, and it's oh wow, Ennis said been putting the blocks to a woman who worked part time at the Wolf Ears Bar in Signal, where he was working now for Stoudemire's car and calf outfit, but it wasn't going anywhere, and she had some problems he didn't want. That's it. And then said that same paragraph, Jack said he'd had a thing going with the wife of a rancher down the road in Childress, and for the last few months he'd slank around expecting to get shot by Lorene or the husband one. Well, I see. I got the. Did you guys get the impression that when he had a thing going on with a local rancher's? David Harbor. That's who he was talking about. It had nothing to do with the. The rancher's wife was David Harbor. Right. It wasn't. Right. It, yeah. it was the ranch himself. It was not the not Anna Ferris who is playing, in a star-making role, the wife of David Harbor, where she just talks for like mile a minute. You know, minutes straight without anyone interrupting <laughs> so i didn't make the connection until just now when you when you sort of said it like i i suspected that he was talking about david harbour but that's I think absolutely yes yeah that's and that's one of those things that ennis isn't allowed to know or doesn't know and yes because it's okay if they're fucking around with other women right it's isn't that interesting that it's fine if you're fucking around with other women 
and even like the fact that okay, so Ennis is he's not married anymore, but he's got a girlfriend. Girlfriend? Girlfriend. Jack is married and allegedly having an affair with another woman, and that doesn't bother mm-hmm. Ennis either. So Jack is sleeping with two, maybe more women, doesn't bother Ennis at all. But the idea of one other man, that fucks with Ennis badly. Because those are the ones that matter. Right. right? That's, that's really interesting. So, um, mm-hmm. I think that this is their last... Over Mexico later. What now? Sorry. That's why he loses it over Mexico later. Yes, right. He knows why Jack's going to Mexico. Right, right. Um, I feel One like week. the night before the big fight over Mexico, and I, I wish I knew how to quit you, the night before that, when they're passing back and forth, Old Rose whiskey, shared cigarette, they're sitting by a lake, the mountains are in the background, and there's they're sitting by a fire. I think that's the last happy moment that these two men have together. And I'm also, mm-hmm. I'm not positive, but is that the last time they see each other? It is. Yes. So they, it ends with a fight. Yep, sure does. Yes, but there is also in that same scene, I believe there's a flashback. Is there not? There is. Yeah. On the mountain. Yeah, and it's just saying you're asleep on your feet or you're sleeping on your feet like a horse. My mama used to say that, and then she'd sing to me, and he hums in his ear. It's beautiful. It's a really beautiful moment. Short story has that too. Right after their fight, and the I wish I knew how to quit you has that same flashback too. But that's the last time they see each other. Definitely that trip. I mean, man, you know, maybe it's such a direct a direct um adaptation because if it ain't broke don't fix it man like, yeah seriously to inc- and if you can't fix it you gotta stand it <laughs> because there ain't no rains on this one ain't no rains on this one um so i want to talk really quickly about jack's truck because remember at the beginning jack has a truck and it's barely running and mm-hmm. ennis gets it running and what i, I have a note on this at the beginning of this movie ennis is literally up to his chest in the engine of Jack's truck when they first meet and he gets it running and he's it, he's inside the mechanics and I I genuinely believe that this is an, an intentional performance choice kind of shaped by Ang Lee because there is there's a certain sort of intimacy of working really really working on someone's truck he's right in there he's fixing up the engine he's got the hood open hey get her fired up Watch it next time you watch this. Watch how Annis interacts with Jack's truck. He licks his thumb and he polishes the chrome of the rear driver's side door handle, and that is the only contact that I think he makes with Jack's new truck. Mm. And the difference between that and where we first saw these two like roughneck dudes, he he pops the hood on the first time, like not to i mean you can kind of read your own metaphors into this but when you get to a point where all you're doing is touching the the handle and you get a sense that it's because he's this is a really nice truck i don't want to mess up the paint or i don't want to that is a different something's changed between these two men and they they try to define it in their monologues following and i think they get pretty close but i don't think that either of them say anything as eloquent as the fact that he won't touch anything but the door handle on the truck. Yeah. That that physical performance reinforcing mm-hmm. this new distance between them. Along with the clothes and Jack's mustache and mm-hmm. his new... He's his outside of his social strata now. He's, he's just in a totally different... They were almost equal 
when they first met. Yeah. And now it's, I mean, Jack was still above him. Very small. Yeah. But now different. When they first met, basically you could tell the difference because Ennis was wearing his coat and Jack had like his big shiny rodeo buckle on his belt. And that was like the fanciest thing about him. Right but now. It's all, it's all that. Like you said, he's got the LL Bean catalog outfit. Right. Ennis yeah. Same tan leather coat that he's had the whole time. He's never gotten rid of that thing. Well, it is a different one because it doesn't have the breast pockets. I was watching that coat very carefully because I wanted the fuck out of Ennis's first. They wear in this movie. I like Jake's blue jean thing too with the fur. Oh, I love that fur collar coat. Oh my God, please. Let me get it. Which one do you like? Do you like the shearling collar um, denim Shearlings are one of my, oh God, that's beautiful. I like the green and black shearling collared plaid jacket that he's wearing. That to me. That's pretty sexy too. Cowboy hat. (laughs) Nothing is better than the shearling jacket that the old sheriff in misery wears though. I mean, I don't know. I think Tom Hardy's shearling leather bomber jacket in Dark Knight Rises is pretty fucking. Okay, that wins. Okay, that wins. Okay, that wins. (laughs) Yeah, you are you are contractually obligated to hold the lapels while you're wearing it. Otherwise, it won't stay on. It'll fly off of you. Clearly, because Tom Hardy is 200 pounds heavier than you are, and it's all muscle. And he's shorter than you are too, because he's no. Actually, we weigh the same. Mine's just all fat, and his is muscle. (laughs) Oh, Carl. Um, let's do you guys. Well, I get the next thing is damn, Connor, Gee, you, you're still doing it. Connor's like either. A di- it. I can't tell. <laughs> if- I wish I had a, it is going to sound really weird, but I wish I had a pair of uh, women's underwear here right now. Cause there's Don't a certain all. way to put it over your face to make it look like Bane's mask. I hold it. looks exactly like Bane's mask. And sometimes I'll do, I'll just grab, you know, this is way too confessional. Cut this out. <laughs> Boys, uh, I'll do that. I'll grab a pair of underpants, put it over my head, and hold my chest like that, like a bane, and say, "Boys, I've had the OBS running for four hours, no cuts, but I will cut for Max." Anyways, love you. It'll be very painful for you. <laughs> like, boy, you're you, a big guy. Boy, you got a panty on your head. <laughs> Boys got a panty on his head. Um. All right, so the next thing that happens, now that we've uh, had a moment of levity, thanks. You want to talk about Jack getting beaten to death by a bunch of homophobes? Does that sound fun? Yeah, it kind of sucks, doesn't it? Let's move on. Just kidding. Um, The way that Ennis is notified, this actually made me think of something. So up until very recently, um, if you were in a homosexual relationship in the United States and your partner was dying, you were had no legal rights to be in the room. The family could keep you out because you yep. couldn't be legally married to them. And that, and that's now. This is me in twenty twenty one watching a two thousand five movie. Two thousand five is before gay marriage was legal in the United States. Ten years before gay marriage was legal. This movie is sixteen years old. So that's that's mm-hmm. not that long. That's sixteen years. We're in twenty twenty one. And when this movie came out, gay marriage was not legal in this country. This movie is in 1963, pointing out how fucked up it is that people can't love who they want to love. Yeah. And when this movie was made in 2005, that was still the case and still would be the case for quite some time. For another decade. Yeah, and this was just a couple years before that whole, was it Prop 8 in California? Yeah, Prop 8. Blow up over that and mm-hmm. like the, the absolute banning and then repealing and all that sort of stuff that really got the ball rolling on right. the decision 
in 2015, but yeah. And the I mean, obviously, Jack's death is horrible. One of the things that make me the that that wrecked me the most about it was that Ennis found out because a postcard that Jack had sent to him got no that he had sent that he'd Jack. sent to Jack had been sent back to him because Jack was yeah. dead. Yeah. Yep. Deceased. Recipient deceased or whatever. Yeah. I think it literally it's just, just says deceased. Oh, just said deceased. Yeah, just the red stamper. Deceased. So it's like, like a return. No call, no letter, no. We're terribly sorry to inform you, but your friend has no. Right, and the the man. the phone call that we do get is to J- yeah. is to Jack's wife. And actually, mm. I believe both of you gents have some some so, talking to talk about earlier. I we had referenced earlier the teeny tiny subtle little acting moments in this movie, especially in the face. And we've talked a lot about hand movements. Yeah. Anne Hathaway's performance, reminder, at age 22 in this film, and she's now playing a woman in her, what, 40s? 40s. Late 40s. Mm-hmm. This yep. scene, um, is some of the most astounding, honest acting I've ever seen. During this phone call, her voice is monotone almost the entire time, mm-hmm. except when they get to the the end of the call and just towards the end of the call when Ennis is talking about, yeah, we was fishing buddies and we used to go out together and she, she has a couple of pauses and sighs, and then she makes these almost imperceptible little hmm, sort of noises like that. Mm-hmm. That, that is the noise. I think she does it twice. She makes a hmm, sort of little, I don't know if you're even picking that up, but it's I like am. a little squeak, like a little, just eh, sort of noise. And it's like a, he used to say he wanted his ashes scattered on Brokeback Mountain, but I wasn't sure where that was. I thought Brokeback Mountain might be where I'm where he grew up. Knowing Jack. It might be some pretend place where a bluebird sang and there's a whiskey spring. Oh man, we we was herding sheep in Brokeback one summer. Well, he said it was his favorite place. I thought he meant to get drunk. He drank a lot. Is this folk still up in London Flat? I'll be there to the day they die. Uh, Thank you for your time. I sure am sorry. We were just good friends. Each of those is like a moment of realization of, oh my God. Oh shit. Oh shit. Talk about Brokeback Mountain. It's when Ennis mentions Brokeback. And, you know, she says, like, he used to say he wanted to be cremated, ashes scattered on Brokeback Mountain. I didn't know where that was. Uh, and she says how he used to talk about Ennis Del Mar is his fishing buddy. And it's, we are watching in real time her realization of what was going on because I don't yeah. think she fully know knew about Jack the way that Alma did about Ennis. No, I she think she's making that discovery. It's and all I, the pieces are coming together at that point. I think we yeah. see towards the end of Jack's life. I think we see um, like their marriage has, has pretty much become a very rote sort of thing where it's like that scene where she's in the office doing the right. accounting 
comes in to talk about their son who's got uh, dyslexia or a learning disorder. And it's just like really basic husband and wife. Like there's no passion here. We're just talking about the business right now. Right. Thing. So I think she probably suspected or maybe just thought, thought something was off or maybe did think he was, you know, putting it to the rancher's wife or something like that. Mm. But is in this moment when she connects how passionate Jack was whenever he talked about Brokeback Mountain and the fact that it was Ennis he went to Brokeback Mountain with, it all makes sense and clicks for her in that moment. And that's when, while Ennis is talking, she just goes, mm. like that little, it's like a thing escapes her body, an involuntary noise. Involuntary, yep, exactly. It goes, oh my God, this is the guy. This is what Jack was was keep this was the distance between me and Jack. I've just discovered it. And uh, and she's trying to maintain her composure that whole time. Right. And I, again, her voice never leaves like that monotone, sort of like given the facts. And she says Jack was pumping up a flat on the truck in the back row when the tire blew up. Like it's so matter of fact. Like no, this is the story she's practiced. Right. But she actually she knows he was beaten to death. Right. Right. And, why she suspects but this is the story that she's practiced he was pumping a tire on the back road and the tire blew up and blah, 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 blah. it's by rote for sure she said it so many times that it just comes out automatically and i think yeah. you're right i think she does everyone why jack died right she had to tell everyone in their life and i don't think she suspects that he was beaten to death i think she knows that he was beaten to death and that that's not a that's not a that's not a polite thing to tell People. So what's the lie you tell so you don't have to say that your husband was dragged out into the into a ditch by five dudes and beaten to death? Um, she and, may not know why he was beaten to death, but right. that's where the him is probably coming together now for her, though, along with everything else during this phone call. Death because a he was in a relationship with this guy, and b that's why these guys took him out and did that to him. And do you know what makes this performance even stand out stand out even more for me? She's twenty two. It's well, not only is she 22, and this might this might seem like a small thing, but for anyone that has had to act with this particular set of challenges will understand. Um, she's doing this all on the phone. It's phone acting. It's phone she's acting. Deceptively tricky type of acting. Yes, it too. is. Probably the most deceptively difficult acting to do. Mm-hmm. And it's that just blow it blows my mind and just i can't there's there's no not enough words to to convey how incredible this performance is i just real i just realized there is another now i might be misremembering this because it is from my childhood but i was watching the oscars once when i was younger i don't remember even what year but colin firth was nominated and the clip that they played for the movie that he was nominated for it's not the king's speech it was before the king's speech i'm almost positive So Colin Firth, the scene that they played, the clip that they played was, and he's in that movie, I'm pretty sure that he plays a gay man and he's being informed that his partner has died. And it's a one-way phone call and we only see his side of the phone call. Mm -hmm. Okay. And that phone call where he's informed that his gay lover has been killed, I think was the moment that he was nominated for and they were like talking about it. I think that's really interesting that that's essentially what's happening here as well, except we're seeing 
we do see both sides, but we're really focusing more on yeah. the informer. Rat- yes. Anyway, but yeah, I, I think that the Academy recognizes phone acting as being particularly difficult because it is. You can nail it there. You can nail it anywhere. Kind of like New York City for Broadway actors or whatever. Whatever the old phrase. That old Aww. saying. I'm sorry. My brain is starting to melt down. It's fine. It's been a long time, but we are at the end. You're good, dude. You. This has been the like longest, most marathon, hardcore episodes. We're at three, three. This is about four hours. We're going to hit about four hours by the time this is done. Which, Connor, you are the only guest who's ever pulled off four hours, and you've done it three times. The style. Yeah, you have. Mandy and... Mandy. Um, Mandy and uh, uh, Leaving Las Vegas Mandy. were both, like, fucking just powerhouse episodes. <laughs> um, great movie. So, I, okay. yeah, I, I also noted those I little... I wanted to spotlight that, that phone call, because I think it's just an absolutely stunning piece of acting it's for a stand, me. It's a standout performance yeah. piece yeah. is great in the call too with his like you know very subtle like oh geez yeah it does him hurt. realizing yeah. what happened too because mm-hmm. he didn't get the full story he just got deceased he right. didn't get the full story until that right. phone call and he's he's like biting his lip the whole time he's like doing that sort of right. thing that he does when he gets nervous but man her hathaway is just just phenomenal his use uh, yeah i i also noted um the small i called it the the small sounds that don't quite make it to Mm -hmm. sob um right yeah it's it's like the a hint of a sob. one of my favorite things about because anne hathaway's she owns this scene it's it's insane but one Mm -hmm. of my favorite elements of heath ledger's performance in this scene on the phone is his use of silence because silence when you're across from someone can be very effective, but there's an extra level of tension to silence on a phone because the other party can hang up and that'll be the end of the conversation. So when he, mm-hmm. when she says, hello, hello, and then doesn't say anything else and yeah. Heath Ledger makes the decision to continue to sit in silence for a while. Yeah. That creates such an almost unbearable tension because you expect Lorene to hang up. Mm-hmm. All right, bye now. Right, and yeah, he needs yeah. to. There needs to be more of this. We need some resolution, and the resolution that we get is Ennis visits Jack's childhood home. This this is straight out of a fucking did, horror movie yeah, to me, dude. Total tonal shift. It's a tone shift for me. This goes straight into like, I don't know if the performances are a little bit goofy here, but I I don't think so. It's 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 a it's an it's a super interesting scene because of the way it's played. Where dad is double talking the entire time. Oh yeah, right. Like they big both time. Know. They, they both, both know. That they Jack both absolutely was gay. Absolutely yeah. know. Definitely. And mm-hmm. but it it is so awkward and uncomfortable. And mom's behavior it reads like it's right out of a horror flick. And I don't mean like mm-hmm. Halloween, but like a very deep, disturbing, visceral horror picture like there right is down something... to how she's kept his childhood room yes completely like from when he was nine years old it's like, like hereditary it, it's like a child it is room. very much like an ari aster yeah. moment here and it's and i think that that's i think that that's intentional i agree it's also gray the whole house is very gray mm-hmm. and like it's almost like the saturation has been pulled out of the i think film. it yep. has i literally think it's it has so gray in that scene yeah the sky is gray 
The barn that's behind Ennis's truck mm-hmm. when he pulls up is gray. The house is gray. Yeah. There's almost no the furniture. People are gray. I mean, they're like sallow and and like they have no color it, it, to their skin. The, like it's yeah. The color was, the color was one of the things that I noticed. But what struck me more is how sparse their house is. There is almost no yeah. furniture. The kitchen. The shot of the kitchen was horrifying because there's yep. a there's like a bowl of fruit. And a spatula and nothing else. There's yeah, no- it's yeah. a pretty upsetting scene. It is. It is. It's very upsetting. It is, makes you viscerally uncomfortable. I'm. I was obviously in the moment. You hate them enormously, but well, yeah. not both of them. You hate the dad enormously, and you pity the mom ferociously. Yes. But at the end of yes. that scene, I was so impressed with those two actors. Absolutely. That was. I was so unsure at first, though. At first, my note, my first note with them is, "Oh no, do they know that this is a drama and not a horror movie?" See, but then as the scene plays on, it all fits, and I'm like, "Oh no, I understand what's happening." See, I didn't. This is. I didn't, it did for me. It read real like. Well, I don't know. There was just something about it. It was. It just it felt such so different from the rest of the movie. It, that that is that's just how it struck me, and I think that it okay. still stands that way. I think that that it's it because it is very unsettling and disturbing. And one of the things and, I don't know. One of the things that really struck me about this scene in particular, um, I mean, obviously the big reveal at the end. Of this... uh, you know, it's because they reminded me of like the. Has anyone ever seen the Book of Eli with no. Denzel Washington? Uh-uh. Anyway, there's there's a moment in that. Say, anyway, it's like a post apocalyptic post apocalyptic movie, mm-hmm. and he Denzel Washington is our hero character, and he's off looking for something. Let's just say, but anyway, so he goes into this house, and he thinks it's just this old couple that's going to like give him food and talk to him and whatever. And he realizes very slowly that they're actually cannibals, and they're they're trying to trap him to kill him, to then like eat him and but this this felt very much like the tone from camera work to everything that it felt very much like that scene from the book of eli which is i think why i was like man this feels because you like, kept are expect- the cannibals right like, you kept like, expecting not, them to try and eat yeah, Ennis or something yeah right right but not not so much that but it's but that was very much the 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 feel of of this room with these two people that are acting very strangely and there's something just a little bit off with both of them. So and... I said, I said, there's, um, they get almost everything from the story into the movie. Yeah. This is one thing that they don't expand on in mm-hmm. the movie that is in the story. There is some dark shit with the dad. It's just a paragraph here and I, I'll just skim it, um, and give you the gist of it. Cause it's a long paragraph, but it starts with, uh, in Ennis's head, it says, so now he knew it had been the tire iron. And this is after the dad gives his spiel, which is also in the movie about he had this harebrained idea about he was going to lick this ranch into shape, bring mm-hmm. Anna Delmar up here and that whole thing. But it goes on in the story to talk about how Jack had relayed a story to Ennis about when he was younger and had difficulty um, when he was three or four. He was always late getting to the toilet and ended up like peeing all over the toilet seat, basically. And his dad discovered this and whipped the ever-loving shit out of him and then said you want to know what it's like with piss all over the place and then unzipped his pants and pissed all over jack wow that was like a brutal awful learning experience for him i remembered that from Uh, the story and and it ends with him saying he he in that moment saw that 
uh, his dad was uncircumcised, whereas Jack was circumcised. And he said, no way to get it right with him after that. Like after he noticed that fundamental difference between them in something as simple as like circumcision, you know, sort of like there is just a, there's a void between us that can never be crossed. Right. Uh, You know, when he's like four years old or whatever. And honestly, think about the circumstances under which he would, he would notice that. Like, right. it's not just like, oh, yeah, I saw my dad coming out of the shower when over him. Right. Like when he put his dick out to pee on a four year old child. Right. That's to, when he noticed. to punish he, him as part of his potty right. training. Yeah, that is right. after exactly. whipping him. Yeah, that's right with him after that. Like, <sighs> yeah, the New Yorker publishes some pretty wild shit sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> um, One of the things. So obviously, dad is pretty fucking awful in this scene but i thought that the real standout and both of both of them are great as uh, performatively mom and dad but i don't think either of them are good alone because what mom does amazingly is mom you mom is doing the like a pitch perfect performance of an abused housewife Mm -hmm. because why don't you stay for dinner why don't you stay the night and then the last thing she says to Ennis, you come back and see us again. Do you yeah. want to go up and see his room? Because while Ennis is here, the husband She's can't. Safe. D- yes, exactly. And all, yeah. but it's it's not just that. It's also, and I think this is kind of horrible. But did you notice that the the layout of the buildings between um, Ennis's original ranch where he lived with Alma is almost identical to where Jack's oh, parents good. live? I think that when Ennis leaves that house, or he kind of sees what he could have ended up as. Yeah. Where Alma just, the the dad is checked the fuck out, and she is alone in the middle of nowhere all the time with someone who doesn't care about her and can be occasionally violent, or is often violent. That was kind of how Ennis was. That's mm-hmm. kind of, that's horrifying. Ennis mm-hmm. sees firsthand that the man that he loved, that man's nightmare is what Ennis was on his way to becoming. I think that shakes Ennis badly. Not only, yeah. and it's not just that. It's there's a sort of like low level hysteria to the mom's performance the whole time, where she seems she always seems like she's like a couple words away from crying, but she never yeah. gets there. And that there's a there's also a particular understated cruelty in the delivery of all of the dad's lines that I think Mm -hmm. are kind of amazing in a horrible, horrible way, but a really well, tightly controlled performative way where he says he thought he was too good for the family plot. And then later we've got a family plot and he's going in it. That wording is fucked up. Yeah. Cause that's why Ennis is there. He's there to get Jack's ashes to take them to broke per his wishes. I know where Brokeback Mountain is. Right. That is a shocking mm, revelation. Yes, it is. Woof. He doesn't know where it is on the map. Well, he does, but he also knows what it represents. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And can we talk briefly? Uh, now we're at the end of the movie because he t- we find we really quickly because I have a note about it at the end. We find out that Jack kept Ennis's bloody shirt from Brokeback Mountain inside his own bloody shirt so what he did was when they were on the mountain he thought he had lost it 
Right, and they actually make a note of it earlier in the movie so that we'll remember it later. It's one of my favorite... Or whatever. Yeah, it's it's just a one-line little thing. It's such a great slow burn yeah. reveal. Yeah. Yeah, I can't believe I left my shirt up on the mountain. He didn't. Jack yeah. took it. But the fact, what he does is Jack had a denim shirt and... Ennis had like a, a button, like a whitish like button up. Yeah, kind of like a whitish poplin type dealio with a pattern mm-hmm. on it. And Jack put Ennis's shirt inside his shirt. And one of the things we see, and it's a beautiful little reveal and it's well shot, is mm-hmm. when Ennis Ennis doesn't see. We don't see the shirt. We see the sleeve because he peels Jack's sleeve back and sees his own sleeve underneath. And we realize that since both men got hit in the face and both mopped up their blood with their right sleeve. Jack layered their shirts together so that their blood would always be touching forever. It's so mm-hmm. heartbreaking and so mm-hmm. beautiful. It's beautiful. And we're and we're not done with the beauty yet. Cause at the very end of the movie, as kind of a our, our little coda at the end of this heartbreaking but very beautiful romance, we see Ennis putting numbers on a mailbox. I love this scene, but it makes me cry. Mm-hmm. Ennis put, is putting numbers on a mailbox And he He like takes a little step around He's got his marbred hanging out of his mouth And he looks at the letters Or the numbers on his mailbox With something like Satisfaction or yep. maybe pride And then when we Step inside his trailer It's And it's partly It might partly be the prejudice of us as Viewers who have houses with heaters and things like that but when you when you see his trailer you're like i don't understand your pride and i want but you want to you want to know you get some sense of it because he's been scratching his whole life for his own place and his independence and and he's always made his own way so that's some of this pride which is like yes it's a fucking rundown trailer with no insulation and no heat and no fucking furniture but you know what it's mine and here's my yep. mailbox, and here's the numbers that I'm putting on, and the the care with which he applies those breaks my heart. Yep. But we're not even done being fucking heartbroken yet, because yes, okay, Kate Mara has a little scene here, but honestly, yeah, that's not in the story, the daughter thing, but it is a no. nice little tie up for his his relationship with her, and right. it's fine. It yeah, it, in a weird way, in a movie that ends as darkly as this one does, I feel like that's the closest thing that Ang Lee could give us to a happy ending, which is I yes. mean, he might have a third act late <laughs> in life reconnection <laughs> with his daughter, whatever that's going to look like. Yeah, and then then we get the scene with the wardrobe, man. This is fucked up. It's outstanding. Fucked up that this was put on film. It should have been illegal to make a scene this sad it's, in a movie. It's. It, <laughs> I find it incredibly beautiful. I, I don't find cannot, this. I, I, no, I, I I'm totally joking because I only because I can't get through even talking about this scene without crying. It is. I my note just says this might be the saddest ending I have ever seen. It's to a movie. It's heartbreaking. Um, and it, once we're done talking about this, I do want to read the last page of the story that contains this scene because I think there's some some extra stuff in there but go ahead sorry you were starting out i interrupted you no no you're good um i just wanted to so what happens is after kate mara leaves we realize that or uh, ennis realizes that she has his daughter has forgotten her like sweater and it's the the heartbreak starts with the way that heath ledger folds that sweater up there's there's a certain like it's very paternal it's a very Mm -hmm. fatherly let me fold this up it's not i'm gonna set this 
in a in a trailer covered with trash and dirty dishes and his clothes are lying all over he takes the time to fold up the clothing of someone who is dear to him to put it away in its place but also to shut it away so he doesn't have to look at it all the time because it hurts him a little and he Mm -hmm. opens the door to that wardrobe and we see that their shirts are hanging on the door but now jack's shirt is inside of his and not only that there's a there's a uh a postcard of Brokeback Mountain tacked next to the shirt. And he, I mean, there's, there is no, I will not even attempt to describe Heath Ledger's performance. If you want to see this, you have to watch it. You just have to watch it. But he says, and I won't, I'm not even going to give you the line. I'm assuming it's in the story. So Connor will read it to you, but I'll read it if you want. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely do read that whole last page for sure. But, but I'm telling you listener, if, if, not for no other reason this movie is worth two hours and 15 minutes of your time just to see the last 45 seconds i am not kidding you words (laughs) yeah yes three Uh, three three completely open-ended words it's it is the most i think it might i I mean i don't know i haven't i haven't seen every movie ever made but i'm racking my brain for a better line delivery and i can't come up with one it might be the most honest thing that any actor has ever said into a camera It'll break your heart, but I want to read my note as well because I think that this is one of the <laughs> one of those moments where Ang Lee is working on so many beautiful levels, and it's the cinematography, and it's the performance, and it's the costuming choice. Because now, by inverting the shirts so that his shirt is on the outside, he carries Jack under his clothes and under his skin forever. And with Brokeback tacked to the wardrobe door, and I'd like to point out that even though it's not necessarily part of a Western, wardrobes as an entrance into a fantasy land or a land of dreams is a very common theme in almost all Western storytelling because of C.S. Lewis's Narnia stories. I don't Mm -hmm. think it's accidental that he keeps his dreams inside a wardrobe. And when when that door closes, we realize because of the beautiful lineup of this shot that the door has been opened so that the picture of Brokeback Mountain is almost perfectly covering up behind the wardrobe door a window that looks out of Ennis's trailer. And we haven't really seen much of where Ennis is living except for when Kate Mara rolls up in the car. And the, we, the last thing we see is where he's ended up. And when that door closes, when Ennis shuts the shirts away and puts Brokeback back in the closet back in the wardrobe, back into the dreams and away from sight. He shuts away his dream, and he puts the mountain back into the dark, and we look out the window at the world that he lives in, and we see flat plains and gray sky and no mountains because the mountain has gone with Jack, and Ennis's world is now small and fixed in a window frame and flat. And that's how we end this movie. Yep. Fuck fine i'm just tearing up over here it's yeah it's so heavy and so sad and so hard but it i can't i can't say that it's anything but beautiful too it is so stunningly beautiful incredible let's get the page connor yeah read it to us man now i gotta i'm legitimately tearing up i gotta see if i can get through this so the setup for this it's it's slightly different um in the short story, like I said, there's no scene with his daughter. 
So the the scene is instead he goes to a local um, drugstore and asks for a postcard of Brokeback Mountain, and and she uh, the woman at the counter has to order one for him. Um, so that's where this starts. He um, and she says, uh, you know, I can order a hundred. I I got to order some more cards anyway. And he says, one's enough," said Ennis. When it came, thirty cents. Excuse me. Got a burp. Sorry. I'll start that over again. Uh, <laughs> One's enough, said Ennis. When it came, 30 cents, he pinned it up in his trailer, brass-headed tack in each corner. Below it, he drove a nail, and on the nail, he hung the wire hanger and the two old shirts suspended from it. He stepped back and looked at the ensemble through a few stinging tears. And this is the line you referenced. Jack, I swear, he said, though Jack had never asked him to swear anything and was himself not the swearing kind. Around that time, Jack began to appear in his dreams. Jack, as he had first seen him, curly-headed and smiling and buck-toothed, talking about getting up off his pockets and into the control zone. But the can of beans with the spoon handle jutting out and balanced on the log was there as well, in a cartoon shape and lurid colors that gave the dreams a flavor of comic obscenity. The spoon handle was the kind that could be used as a tire iron. And he would wake sometimes in grief, sometimes with the old sense of joy and release, the pillow sometimes wet, sometimes the sheets. There was some open space between what he knew and what he tried to believe, but nothing could be done about it. And if you can't fix it, you've got to stand it. That's the end. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the last thing I want to point out is uh, the sort of theme, the the musical theme to the movie is called The Wings. It's a track by Gustavo Santayaya, who won the Oscar for Best Mm -hmm. Original Score. Um, So the the Wings comes in, as he says, Jack, I swear, at the end there, and that swelling uh, music. And I believe the only other time we hear that particular track in the movie is when they're... uh, the, the their second time uh, on the mountain or their fishing trip rather and it, it's right after the first time i made a specific note of it it's right after the first time that ennis says if you can't fix it you got to stand it and wow. that's it comes in and he doesn't say it in this last scene but that's the words the story ends on and the wings comes in again and i just fucking that music track breaks me in half because it's, it is so melancholy everything's yes. in that you know, I think it's like a minute 30 or something. Right. The whole thing. And everything is in that track. If you listen to it, I don't know, maybe play it at the end of the episode if you can without <laughs> having a rights violation, but I can't, it, but it's online folks. Yep. <laughs> uh, it, it is just everything about this movie is in that track. And I, I think that Oscar was well-deserved because Gustavo, like just the soundtrack is so spare but there's not a wasted note in it. I agree. People note picks of the guitar, and it, it's just everything about these two men is in that music. And, uh, yeah. I love it. We I talk- got nothing else to say. That fucking ending of the story and the movie just breaks me in two. And I, like, I mean, you can hear my voice shaking right now. It's um, very I, emotional. I, I'm so glad you read that last page because yeah. it's just one final, the, the, best and final example of fitting in 
of of referencing and fitting in the unspoken subtext of the movie on such a deep level that using the score that was playing when the line that the story ends with was played is played at the end of the film in place of that line. line. And the only way you would ever know that is if you carefully watched this movie and had read the story. Like we do. Like we do. (laughs) Like this show is all about. Um, yeah, man, it's Brokeback Mountain is an absolutely outstanding film. Like I said, I, it, for many years, it was my favorite romance and man, I don't know, like we're going to watch like three of my, or two of my top five in this month. And I'm going to find out for sure, which is the number one. And I'm kind of starting to suspect it's this one again. (laughs) It's a masterpiece. I'd be surprised. It really is. It's undeniable. All the movies we're doing this month, the third movie we're going to cover might be the only other thing that's on par with this one for me. Uh, and you'll see why. Because that's one I know that neither of you have seen. Yep, never seen that one. Yep. We're going to get into it, and it's going to be uh, it's going to be very interesting for many reasons. I actually haven't seen the next one either. I've only seen the first and the last. Yeah. Okay. You know, I have to look at my calendar now, because now I'm like, what movies are you guys talking about? <laughs> that's okay. Well, uh, Die Hard 5. and um... <laughs> I, I updated my calendar today, so you can't fool me. I know when you're pulling the wool over my eyes. <laughs> Oh, no, I have not seen this, and I'm very excited to see this. I'm still so, yeah. ready to cry. Yep. Oh, yeah. Well, man, that's I... one of the reasons. It's one of the main reasons I haven't watched it yet, Connor. I Because I know that it's going to make me like just a puddle of fucking tears. I kind of assumed that Connor's month was just going to be like the month of tears, pretty much. Yeah. What yeah. a way to start season four. Just salty, salty tears. I mean, four hours of, of praising a masterpiece. I'd say that's not a bad start. I think that's not a bad start at all. End in tears, you know. It's, all right. Well, listener, we have kept you for four fucking hours. And we've, we've kept our, our wives for four hours. Yep. Uh, all, I'm pretty sure all of our wives are asleep. Oh. Definitely asleep. At if the yep, sobbing, the case. if the sobbing yep. hasn't kept them awake, <laughs> so we're gonna let you go next week. Stay tuned. You've got a whole month of Connor Sweeney. Are you not excited? Are you not entertained? I am delighted. Um, Connor, I cannot think of a better way to have started season four. I cannot think of a person I would rather have uh, making that sincerely. I'm sorry. Say that one more time. I talked over you in accent. I, oh, I just said I'm honored to be here, and I mean that sincerely. I, I think what you guys do is fantastic. I love both of you guys just personally outside of the show. Uh, but my day mostly consists of poopy diapers right now, so this is such a, a welcome respite from that world. Wonderful. Uh, getting to do something I love and talk about a movie that I love with you guys. Dude, well, feel feel free to use us as an excuse for the rest of the year. Be like, I, I'm so sorry, Hannah. I would do the poopy diapers but i'm in every month now I, I i'm the new third man yeah anytime you want to just watch a movie instead of deal with your children do that hey, and that's why i shouldn't be a parent <laughs> i can change a diaper in the dark in five seconds flat so i'm proud of that fact see that well, sound that sounds impossible but honestly with you sir i believe it um all right, so we're getting out of here. I cannot recommend Brokeback Mountain to you enough. If you've ever had any trepidation about watching this movie, cast that aside and yeah, go and watch it. Seeing it, it's high time. You, you, you're missing an important 
thing in your life if you haven't seen this movie. I mean, it, it is a life-changing film. I cannot, truly. I cannot I don't think... think any movies, but... I cannot think of a better way to end the episode. So with that, um, we will leave you with that. Um, tune in next week, and we will continue Connor's exploration, Connor's curated tour of Forbidden Love. Thank you so much for listening, and good night. Good night.